expanding universes. Hey everybody, welcome to Expanding Universes. I'm Victor. This is Cole. And we're here to take a deep dive into the expanded universe of Star Wars, so you don't have to. Because let's face it, folks, it's interesting in bits and pieces, but it's tough to get through on a you know big, big picture uh, kind of kind of scale. Also, just think about how many books there are. There's so many. <laughs> yeah, there's too many books. Um, in fact, I, that's one of the few things that I thought Disney did right was canceling the expanded universe. Um, but... So anyway, we are going to be covering uh, Brian Daly's 1979 Han Solo novel, uh, Han Solo at Star's End, the beginning of the Han Solo Adventures trilogy. Uh, and with us to explore this wonderful novel is our very own Sean Miller. Sean, say hello. Hey, everyone. Good to have you with us, Sean. Um, so tell us a little about yourself. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me. Um, so yeah. Hey. Uh, Friend of both you guys, uh, I'm a graphic designer. I am uh, currently working on the the logo for the podcast. Yes. Um, and yeah, I'd say you know, fan a big fan of Star Wars. Um, expanding the expanded universe, um, I'm fairly unfamiliar with. Um, so have you read anything? You know, so the way I would describe it, you know, growing up, I'd go to like half price books, and I'd, every once in a while, I'd see a Star Wars book for cheap, and that's where you tend to see them. Yeah, I kind of pick them up, but as far as the actual like chapter books and things like that, I don't think I ever read any. But yeah, I remember buying a few like guide books, like you know, here are the, yes. the droids of the Star Wars universe. Guide yeah, those books. tend to be a gateway, and those were my gateway as well. Actually, all three of us. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely like picked up and read um, like those guide books, things like that. Um, you know, we'll play the video games like uh, Star Wars Masters of Terrace Kasai, I remember. Okay, yeah, that's a deep cut. There's some expanded universe characters one. in that, but I would, you know, you'd fight as them, but, like, ask me anything about them, I wouldn't be able to tell you. So, you know, and, and when the sequel, the new trilogy came out and everyone was getting all excited about it and all in an uproar because they took away the expanded universe, yeah. I kind of read up a little bit on, like, generally how it went so I could kind of compare, like, would I have liked the expanded universe more than what they're doing now? Yeah, I think you and thousands of other others did as soon as that news blew. You know? For sure. I'm like, oh, I better read up on this. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's really about it for me. So. Okay, gotcha. Um, can you think of like maybe uh, one guidebook in particular that really uh, stood out to you? You know, I was trying to look those up, and I I I think I must have had like a very like an original copy because I remember them being like a shiny cover in mm -hmm. color. But then the rest of the book being very like black and white, one page, mm -hmm. you know, a, one illustration and then text and here's all you got. And I was going on like eBay and stuff and trying to, you know, see what it could have been. And he's like, oh shit, there it is. And I saw a lot of updated editions and stuff like that. So I, I assume it's been like through countless changes, because these are all, yeah. this is probably before, you know, Phantom Menace was out. Yeah, they re-released all of them uh, with uh, new illustrations and new writing. Around uh, the prequels, that makes sense. I mean, I can only imagine how many editions there are at this point. I mean, just there's between... honestly not that many. It's really like a few. You 
know, because you had oh. that kind of first generation in the 90s. Do you know, are those all, like, is it the same author that's all, like, no, being no. upkept, or are they completely... Um, there's, um, yeah, it's multiple authors. Gotcha. Um, I know one book that kind of was my gateway to the expanded universe, which I spoke about at last show, and I mistakenly said that it was written by, uh, I think, Kevin J. Anderson. It's actually written by Stephen Sansweet. It's called the Star Wars Encyclopedia. Um, it's this gigantic tome. Uh, they had it at the Glen Ellen Public Library. Uh, it mm-hmm. had the, the plastic wrap or whatever, you know, those old book God, covers. Nice and weird and, like, fraying in parts. Yeah, <laughs> and they had every single, you know, little piece of uh, obscure trivia, every oddity from the, from the Star Wars universe, and I think that's what kind of, uh, you know, piqued my interest. And, uh, the, you know, the illustrations and the, and the images, they all kind of, when you're a kid, you just run away with them and you really start filling in all the gaps yourself. Yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that's expanded universe for me. I'd say, you know, the Star Wars movies. I mean, you know, I was the right age when, I mean, I think we're all the right age when the prequel movies came out. And yeah, now we're watching kind of like a reevaluation, I think, happening yeah, with the prequels yeah. as well with our, of our generation ages. For sure. Bob Main is uh, definitely on his pulpit and he's doing, doing the good work. Yeah, I want to <laughs> give a shout out to Bug Main of uh, Podcast World and. Mm-hmm. You know the bug stuff. Um, <laughs> you're amazing. Bug and stuff. All of your commentaries with Struggle Session um, have been really illuminating when it comes to the prequels. And I'm a hundred percent firm believer in Bug Main's conspiracy theory that the Hollywood studios actively conspired to start a um, negative publicity campaign against the prequel trilogy by George Lucas. I mean, I'm just saying it's very, very plausible. Because George Lucas was kind of a pariah in the studio, uh, you know, the big five kind of world, um, because he's essentially an independent filmmaker. 20th Century Fox is only distributing these movies. Sure. Otherwise, he's completely in control of uh, everything, really. And uh, what we've seen time and time again is that executives hate it when they can't take credit for things. Um, you see that with The Simpsons. Uh, Fox really hates The Simpsons, even though they keep it on air, um, because they can't take credit for anything, because in the contract for The Simpsons, it was made that the studio execs could not give notes. And it's the same thing for Star Wars. And I think that breeds resentment. I didn't know that about Simpsons. That's like very interesting. It makes yeah. a lot of sense, actually, too. And they, the Simpsons, they'll rip on Fox a lot on the show, too. So that's even more interesting. Yeah, I don't think they care about that so much because usually it's never any one person in particular. Sure. Um, and even if it is Rupert Murdoch, I mean, Rupert Murdoch seems to just not care when it comes to uh, people, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> really, uh, <laughs> slandering him. <laughs> yeah. Let's get into this book a little bit. Um, so Han Solo at Star's End comes out at an interesting time in the uh, Star Wars universe and the development of that. Uh, so with this book, uh, it's the first book to come out since Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which you'll uh, remember from last episode, came out in 1978. Um, and this book uh, comes out in 1979. So really the only things out that were Star Wars uh, novelization. So we had the novelization of the original film. Yes. And then we had Splinters of the Mind's Eye, which was, you know, as we talked about last episode, not necessarily rushed, but rushed. Um, yeah, uh, rushed out as almost, uh, you know, like a backup plan first movie tanked you know absolutely um and it ended up not tanking so they just you know spun it off into a book instead but um this is not the case with brian bailey's han solo at stars End, nor is it with the rest of the han solo trilogy at this point uh when he's hired to write this uh star wars is a surefire hit um they know that they can have you know uh, uh han solo in it because harrison ford won't be leaving the uh the, the movies um he signed on you know to do empire 
Uh, and uh, I guess we should talk a little bit about who Brian Daly is because he's a very interesting person and I think has a better backstory than Alan Dean Foster has. Wholeheartedly agree on that. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't want to... I mean, I guess where to start? I mean, he was a Vietnam vet. Mm-hmm. Um, he was stationed in Germany for a bit. Do you think, was he was he a pilot or do we know what he did in Vietnam? I don't think so. Because I definitely think, like, I loved some of the, you know, the descriptions for, like, the piloting scenes and, and steering the ship and all that stuff. And if he was a pilot, you know, I certainly could see that helping him write those sections. That was, I mean, I, I yeah, I don't know if he was a pilot, but the dogfighting was, like, one of my favorite parts of this novel. And on top of all, I guess, I guess think about the context, I guess. Those, like, war novels were insanely popular. Oh, yeah, I absolutely. Mean, up until, I mean... I feel like our generation is really one of the first uh, generations to grow up without the like over like just complete domination of like novel uh war novels mm-hmm. yeah absolutely. i'd say they're not still popular but no, no, not, not the same way yeah and i think that's part of the reason why star wars was so big not just with kids but also with adults because i think george lucas was tapping into uh several wells of uh enthusiasm in the american consciousness um you know the enthusiasm for these World War II, both movies and books, um, the enthusiasm for these old uh, movie serials, the enthusiasm for, you know, Westerns and noir, um, yeah. and, you know, Kurosawa movies. It's pulp, and, uh, man. It's exactly. pulp through and through. And yeah. Sean, I know this is like your favorite part of Star Wars. Yeah, yeah like, totally. The unabashed. Pulpiness of it, yeah. And I think George Lucas, um, you know, in, in a lot of ways is... Uh, you know, somebody who's trying to uh, t- take advantage of all of those things that are kind of in the public consciousness at once. You know, you have to understand George Lucas is very much a, a product of his time. For sure. Um, and he's not a terribly unique person when it comes to his interests either. I mean, there are thousands and millions of people across America who think the same things that George Lucas thinks are cool also are cool. And I think Brian Daly, to bring it back to him, um, I, I feel like when he read, when he watched Star Wars, he instantly saw a hand and he's like, I get this. This is, this is some, this is the language that I speak, you know, for sure. Um, and I think that's what made him so uniquely suited to write this book. Agreed. Agreed. So he was, uh, assigned to write the book, um, cause he was working for Ballantine, I believe. Um, he had, had a first he... novel published uh, with them, which was kind of a bizarre book. Um, the plots do, do you recall Cole? Um, I have it right here. It's called Doomfarers of Coromond. I'm guessing on that pronunciation. Uh, not unlike... Not a Vietnam book. Unfortunately. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> uh, no, it's this big... Um, I think they described it as somewhat like a... What do you call it? A ambitious sci-fi novel, but he was plucked basically from obscurity. He was... In... Wait, you're not even going to say what the plot of the book is? Oh, I'm sorry. I Come wanted on. to give more backstory. We have to talk about this plot. No, it does have a Vietnam element. So, basically, um, an army APC (laughs) is transported from Vietnam to a generic fantasy setting, uh, (laughs) and they have to kill a dragon. Which is just, I mean, it's awesome. I want to, like, I want to read that. Did did anyone? So, after I read this bit in the article, all I could think about was this really terrible, God, I don't even know what it's a ripoff of, but it's from, like, the late 80s, early 90s. It was called Ring Raiders, and basically, like, Hasbro or Mattel or something was trying to make a cartoon out of their toys, which is something that happened all the time. They were wanting to do, yeah. And um, essentially, pilots from throughout history, you know, the best of the best, were plucked out of history shortly before they would die, and then they were on this time traveling 
the fighter pilot squad. I can't even like describe it. You got to look it up. There's, I saw that there's a bunch on YouTube. I was going to watch some, but you know, I didn't have time, but ring Raiders. I had one of the VHSs. I don't know how I got my hands on it, but this is, that's like basically the plot of this. And this was a TV show? Um, it was a failed TV show. There was like four pilot, like four episodes were made. It was animated, of course. Oh, it was animated. I'm yeah, just sorry. Be like, sorry. What was the budget on this? <laughs> uh, but yeah, they made like four episodes. Apparently, I checked Wikipedia because you know, um, and yeah, that, that's what I thought as soon as I read that. Nice. This very strange, obscure, stupid <laughs> show. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Daly's working for Ballantine, um, and he gets you know plucked kind of out of obscurity um, by the Ballantine editor. Um, uh, who's gonna be, you know, starting a new company, which is Del Rey, I believe. Yes, um, Del Rey. Yeah, um, and uh, you know they're gonna be doing the rest of the uh, books, you know, following the uh, the the novelization. So uh, Brian, you know, is assigned to do this, um, and uh, you know, I don't know to what extent he actually got to work with George Lucas um, compared to Alan Dean Foster. Do you know, Cole? Sorry, what was the question? Do you know? Um, to what extent he was able to work with George Lucas? I don't think he was able to work much with him, <laughs> from what I've read. Unless I missed that, which is entirely possible. I'm just wondering, because Alan Dean Foster was able to. Um, but I guess they had to, to make sure that everything lined up for the uh, possible movie, if the Star Wars movie did well. Oh, here we go. Um, Lucas and his highly protective lieutenants apparently had approval. This is per a wonderful Ringer article that we all kind of dug into okay that dug into this but um it was like lucas had final say on everything gotcha yeah i mean i i think he did pay a lot of attention to the expanded universe um and i think that's something not a lot of people know um and he took things from the expanded universe all the time uh, and you know had them kind of make their way into uh you know the, for the prequels of course not being the prime example um so unfortunately um, Brian passed away too young. Um, he passed away in 1996 after just finishing uh, the Return of the Jedi radio play, which he did all of the NPR radio plays for Star Wars, which is awesome. I really I have nothing but interest in these. I gotta I gotta get my hands on these. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I think uh, you know there was interest in kind of bringing back the art form of the of the radio play. Uh, you know, it seemed like Star Wars was the perfect match for that because it's in uh, such a serial and old timey kind of nature. For sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's too bad about Brian. It seems like he was, a uh, you know, really influential figure in the, uh, expanded universe and, and coined a lot of things and came up with a lot of things that would go on to be, become just a part of Star Wars. Um, I mean, I think one example you can have, uh, you can get is the Vibroblade, which is, you know, mentioned first in this book as a throwaway yeah. line. Um, and Vibroblade, uh, one was just seen on the Mandalorian last week. So it just goes to show how influential this guy is when it comes to the Star Wars world. If you're not watching The Mandalorian, you need to watch it. Yeah, That's all I gotta say. It's pretty alright. It's good. I like it. I'm a big fan. <laughs> it's one, you know, one thing I'd be curious about, um, I do think for the most part, the author nailed Han's voice and his, his speaking and, and things he would say. And, you know, obviously we had A New Hope out before this, but um, I'd be curious to go back and really kind of figure out how much of you know, this author's influence, this author's writing influenced, you know, Future Lines and Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, kind of, you know, the voice of Han, how that goes. Or if just him and Lucas were, you know, kind of in sync from the start. 
uh, yeah, I'm not sure to what extent. I think you'd have to rewatch the movie and kind of like, uh, you know, kind of look at it with a fine tooth comb. Um, you know, with that, let's just get into the book, guys. Um, yeah. So Han Solo at Star's End. Uh, this book uh, kicks off with Han um, in hot pursuit, well, being hotly pursued um, by not the Empire but the corporate sector authority. What? What? Is it almost like, I don't know, it's almost like the capitalists? Yeah, so let's um, let's kind of unpack what the corporate sector authority is supposed to be because it's not always clear. And I mean, they, they will no. give you like one or two lines like of exposition, but they don't give you a ton, which is nice. Um, so according to a Star Wars role-playing game source book from I think the early 90s, uh, the corporate sector authority was actually first um, started um, in the days of the Republic. Um, I think what was uh, needed in the Republic was a place for the corporations to kind of run wild without regulation because uh, they were really stymieing the political process uh, at, at, in Coruscant, um, you know, for the lawmakers uh, because they, you know, are just greedy bastards. This book's very socialist. It, it is very socialist. <laughs> Um, so they basically are given their own free zone and then, um, the empire, uh, you know, uh, adopts it, uh, when they take power in the galaxy and they actually expand it by, I think 50,000 some systems, uh, you know, they really go wild with it showing, uh, just how much fascists love taking business. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, they rule over this area with an iron fist. Uh, there's no native inhabitants, which I think is part of what makes, uh, the, the Republic and the empire, that matters uh citizenry not feel too bad about what the corporate sector authority is up to yeah i thought that bit was really interesting but actually i think it <clears throat> i think the line was no intelligent life oh was that yes. like, you're yeah right. you're right you're right that's an important stuff, distinction but, yeah um yeah i thought you know obviously you know you want to build up these sci-fi elements and make it cool and everything like that i thought it's kind of crazy that you have in the star wars universe where like you know there's there's species on every planet seemingly that you have this vast expanse where there's no intelligent life on that was just a nice little interesting sci-fi bit to throw in yeah absolutely um yeah no i uh it was just very interesting to see it, it skip, gets brought up th brought up throughout the throughout the book kind of just these people who have been affected by the corporate sector authority yeah and there's a very big overarching theme of people who are shipped out from their uh, from their home worlds because, you know, whether it's poor or something else that, you know, like, oh yeah, they promised us the world and now we're slaves. Yeah, that is something that immediately is kind of gotten into. Um, so the mission that Han is on, uh, <laughs> we eventually find out that he is gun running um, to a planet, um, I think called Darun or something like that. Uh, just, yes, you know, as a uh, kind of a PSA, I think we said this before in the last episode, don't come to these podcasts expecting great or basic reading comprehension and you, you will get none of it and you'll be disappointed so do not comment on this web zone about such things um so anyway uh he lands down on jeroon in kind of like an isolated uh section of the planet to avoid the corporate sector authority um and basically all of these uh, weird ass aliens uh need these guns to defend themselves against the corporate sector authority because they were kind of brought as slaves um you know promised a better life um and quickly found out that wasn't the case, and a lot of them escaped. And now with these guns, they'll be able to do battle against the corporate sector authority and actually stand a chance. That's the idea. And Han is 
as ever, you know, trying to keep his hands out of it. Yeah. Know, he's just a smuggler. He's just a pilot. He's just, you know, he doesn't want to take responsibility until, it, you know, he feels like he has to. But and, then instantly we get the first shank on that armor. For sure. Uh, with Han basically being like, ah, oh, what the hell? And, you know, teaches these guys how to fly those guns. Yes. He, he gives them that little lesson and then he, he takes it a step further. He's like, there are, you know, the corporate sector, they're called ESPOs, the bad, like the, the, yeah, they're the security, thugs. They're security police, S police, ESPOs. Yeah, so referred to as ESPOs, exactly what Victor just said. I'm going to be honest, I feel like that's kind of like contrived, like in-universe slang, in my opinion. It's a little, it's just kind of like, it's not, it doesn't roll off the tongue that nice. Yeah. Um, Vice Prex was another one, too. Oh, oh I did not like that one. Yeah. Off well, can you name it? I don't know. He just is like... You look at like Grand Moff Tarkin, like mm. like like I don't know. Star Wars just has like such great like prefixes and titles, and they just Grand Pricks was just yeah. It sounds like they just kind of Brian Daly just picked the first thing that he thought of. Yeah, that is you know that that's one thing I was thinking while reading this book, and you know again you you, you can't help but compare it to the movies and like what if this would be a movie things yes. like that. Um, I think you know you get the story, great. But yeah, a lot of the other ca- the character names would certainly if you, if they ever took this to movie level, I think the character names would need more development. They yeah. need a little a little workshop, yeah. a little work there. Yeah, um, I think that kind of speaks to George Lucas's uh, you know iterative process and sure. just how much he throws against the wall before he finds the right thing. And I think that, for sure that's something that Brian Daly maybe didn't have a, the same luxury working on a deadline. True. Um, so I think we should also kind of talk about what Brian Daly's aim with this book is because I think from the beginning we kind of uh, his 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 goals are apparent in the sense that he is trying to retrofit Star Wars which is a ridiculous space opera into space hard fantasy sci-fi. Sir? yeah space san- fantasy I like opera I like that term um, <laughs> Just but yeah use George's own words <laughs> he tries to retrofit Star Wars into hard sci-fi and there is, I think, a debate raging to this day about whether or not that is something that needs to be done with Star Wars, um, where we need to, you know, have uh, kind of explanations of all the technology, and we need to have um, these. <laughs> Sorry, close the flower. Trying to be quiet. <laughs> yeah, but we don't need to, you know, have uh, everything super fleshed out. Um, I don't know. What did you, what did you guys make of Brian Daly's uh, attention to detail? There's I don't know. There's like I have I, I mean you'll see this in any book you read. There's often just gonna be superfluous. Just you know oh let me describe something in minute detail yeah, and, and that's then that's what you never talk about sci-fi. About it's just that yeah. explanation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean you gotta fill pages, right? That's For sure. Well, how that's usually a part of the novel. Uh, you know your deadline and you got a quota and. Yeah. But I also think Brian Daly has an agenda because I think um, you know he's coming at it for the, from the perspective of an actual sci-fi fan, and George Lucas was you know kind of like a more of a I think a casual fan of sci-fi. I mean, like it's clear he barely understood Dune, <laughs> but uh, and with Brian Daly, you know he's deep in it. You know he's a That's sci-fi fair. dude. He, he eats, sleeps, and breathes it. And I think uh, I think he had if there was one thing that he could say that he wanted more of in Star Wars, it was the hard sci-fi element. You know, give me the kind of like the Star Trek realness of it all. Sure. Okay. I, I could see that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That, I mean, the more I think about it, I guess, I mean, just look at how much, I, I, this is actually one of my favorite parts of the books, or this book, rather, um, is how deep they got into, like, the minutiae of the droids uh, that show up later in the book. 
like just how that whole thing works. Like he definitely gets into like the nitty gritty of these things and how they work, whether it be space battle or what else. Yeah, I, uh, there's a lot of stuff I want to say about droids uh, as we as we continue through this. Sure. Um, Let me just jump ahead. Yeah. No. Um, so anyway, Han Solo, uh, you know, jumps off the planet, um, but he's instantly picked up by a tractor beam from the. Uh, the corporate sector authority, but he's able to get rid of it by, you know, just kind of flying straight down at their ship um, until they, you know, disable it out of fear that they're going to crash into It's them. chicken, baby. Yeah, baby. Um, <laughs> and he, yeah, he, he runs away um, safely. I do want to just backtrack for one second. No, please to, to what was, <laughs> to what was something, or rather, an overarching theme that was brought up throughout the book, almost in some parts, just completely arbitrarily. But, mm-hmm. Han basically worships gambling. His god is gambling. Well, okay. The cosmic deck. Yeah, I mean, I think I was kind of like being a little bit uh, hyperbolic in the notes I was making in the... In the but no. <laughs> no, but I think there is kind of like a subtle thing to it uh, where Brian Daly, I feel, is really trying to give us a glimpse into what Han's worldview is. And Han's worldview is that the entire universe is just based on luck and chance um, and... Uh, you're kind of playing a great game of Sabacc the entire time, which is not, I don't think, named in this book. It is not. They're just playing, uh, what's it, hollow chess? Hollow, what's, yeah, remind me. Um, I don't think Sabacc, yeah, but I don't think Sabacc uh, comes into play until the Lando novels, which, uh, okay, you know, follow our entire, um, yeah, I thought that was a nice little piece that fleshed out Han and Chewie a bit more, just because, I mean, you think, like, they're smugglers, they're dealing with underworld characters, and typically, when we see underworld characters in Star Wars, you know, they're at a cantina, they're doing whatever. Must be they're, a cantina. They're, yeah. And, you know, they're doing, they're doing gambling. They're, they're taking a chance. Um, yeah. So it only makes sense that, you know, maybe they don't have this level of devotion to gambling, but it certainly makes sense that they're in that world. Oh, for sure. It definitely makes sense. It's just, it's, it's funny how often it comes up in the book, and it's like right off the bat. It's like the first page, I think. Even too, um, Han's got the on the, the Millennium Falcon his little like, you know, like hula girl equivalent on the dashboard. Or don't he's got that pair of dice, right? Now, it, so that's that's, that. that's something from the sequels, right? It's, or do we see that in the? It's definitely in the sequels. Do we do we see that in the originals? Oh, I don't know. We, know just, we just started rewatching <laughs> New Hope last week. Oh, okay. But uh, yeah, I don't do know you guys have the uh, Harmies version? We, I just got them. You just got it. I just got them. Uh, we started watching them, but it was after. Doesn't start it look great. It looks great. A. I, I started falling asleep, which is due to the hour. Not I don't know if you've seen them on Disney Plus yet, but. Ooh. Oh yeah, no. I've heard. I've read about how much they've uh, <laughs> further altered. And it's not Disney's fault either. George. This oh, is George. George. Yeah, it's George. He wants everything for years, right? Well, yeah, but, but this is egregious. Race. I mean, he has literally like just jacked up the digital noise reducer on all of the movies and just got rid of any semblance of film grain or anything that would like indicate to you that this was shot on film and not digital. Which That's is what makes appalling. these really nice that we've yeah. so far the, the it's original edits. How analog it is, and just like how everything looks like it's made in the seventies. In the I mean, it's in the best way. Yeah, because I mean, like, you, you it was real. Yeah, everything was practical. People that saw them originally, people that saw the original New Hope, were like, you hear all these stories about how shocked they were with the visuals and how impressed they were and all this stuff. And then if you can only go back and see the highly digitized versions after the fact, you can't really go back and see that. So one thing I've enjoyed so far about these versions we've been watching is you can you can get a clearer picture of like, okay, how did this really play yeah. in real time when it came out? That was what was what most interested me in the the Harmony he specialized because 
I mean, that's not something I've honestly never seen. The first time I saw Star Wars was during the re-release in the 90s, and then... Do you guys have those, those Darth Vader VHS, the complete collection? Do you remember? I had those. So I picked... It's strangely, I, I got those, but it was because someone was getting rid of them in like the mid-aughts. So I never even watched them because I didn't have a VCR at that point. Oh, these are the tapes you guys were talking about. Not well, yeah. we switch. We switched Sorry. Yeah, because <laughs> um, yeah, like, yeah, the tapes, the ones with the, uh, you know, like half, half the face of the, you know, Yoda on the Empire One. Yeah. Or maybe the Stormtrooper yep. on the Empire One or yeah. Zero on the Return, I think. Yeah. Are those, those are specialized somewhat too, right? I believe those are special edition. I think so. I don't know. I can't remember. I just remember one of them had a really cool featurette on the tape um, about uh, the Jabba the Hutt scene in A New Hope, and that's where I first learned about that, and I just thought that was the coolest shit. Um, and I think that kind of began my interest in the behind-the-scenes story of Star Wars, which is one of the most interesting stories to me of all time, is just the how the original Star Wars yeah. was made. Um, let's get back to the book. Um, yeah, absolutely. So the Falcon heads over to uh, Eddie Four which he needs to go to to uh, pay the money, the, the proceeds that he got from the gun running gig. Uh, his uh, benefactor here is uh, one Pluvo two for one, which is a terrible name. It's just, it's very much like, I am a bad man who does bad man things. It's just it's very... And there's the, the gambling connection a little bit more too. Two for one, two yeah. One. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, also, I just want to add one thing and say that it's very unclear who paid Han, Han for, the, for the gun running. It was just like it was like this throwaway sentence about like who knows who who paid these rebels to for these guns. It was very strange. But um, he goes and turns in his his you know his payment, and uh, from there it gets you know the hijinks ensue basically. Yeah, going back to you know the ambiguity about where the money came from, I do like that aspect of it because I think it kind of speaks to in the Star Wars universe. This is also a world where you kind of don't know where people are getting their you know, money from where these rebel groups are being funded from, you know. Space is endless. Think about that. Yeah. Like, come on. Like, and, and totally. And honestly, it's not important because it's, it, it doesn't matter. He, Han is really only concerned with one thing is getting paid, you know, until he starts to care about something. But yeah. I mean, that's what he keeps telling himself is all that matters is getting paid. 100%. So Han uh, gets his Blade Runner on and goes to an exotic <laughs> pet store. Um, this, I love this yeah. whole scene. There's yeah. parts like that, and I guess it makes sense, like, especially back in the day, that'd be too much to, like, special effect and make puppets and everything. But, like, that, this part, the pet shop, was one, there were multiple parts of this book where it's like, God, this stuff, something like this would be great to see in a movie. Yeah, it's like a really sad set a little piece. exotic pet store where you get to see, instead of, like, having all these different, you know, alien humanoid creatures you just have all these little pets and that'd be a great little throwaway in a movie for sure i mean like the i mean it's basically opening up the floor to all your animators and to all your your you know your puppet people like it's just they this was like this you can only see this like in your head being like oh they're gonna have a field day yeah. this is gonna be the, like one of the coolest scenes yeah and i think we're at a point in the star wars universe where authors can still reasonably believe that hey this might be adapted into like a tv show or something so mm -hmm. I should make sure that this shit, like, pops and will, like, you know, pitch well in a fucking meeting. Uh, mm -hmm. And there, there's a lot of that in this book. There's a lot of, like, you know, sizzle to it, I would say. For sure. Um, so he buys this uh, animal called a dinko. <laughs> also, another bet. Like, come on. That was, that was what he got? Dinko? I like, don't know. I kind of like it. 
<laughs> Maybe the Dinko ate your baby. That's all I could think about was Dinkos. <laughs> stop myself. Um, so what is this Dinko? I, I, you know, I kind of like skimmed over that part. It's basically from what I could tell, and Sean, maybe you can... Yeah, let's get this up on Wikipedia. So Ooh, I wonder if there's a picture. Um, if there's a picture, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, but basically, it's like a gerbil, but it has four forearms with claws. This thing looks hardcore. And like a... It's got fangs and claws. Yeah, I know that that, that could mess you up. It kind of looks like almost like a weird, like, I don't know, uh, underbite uh, alligator or something, maybe. Interesting. <laughs> this <laughs> this one was depoisoned, right, I believe? It was, yeah, because yeah. he doesn't want to kill Pluvo, though, spoilers about it. Some of send a message. Happen. Yeah, he just wants to send a message. Um, I mean, yeah, so he says, like, hey, give this Dinko, like, uh, light sedatives or whatever so I can handle it, quote unquote. <laughs> Really, he just doesn't want it to freak out until Pluvo has it in his hands. It's great. He puts it in a box. It's a whole thing. Yeah. So he meets up with Pluvo at this place called the Free Flight Dance Dome, which, from the description, <laughs> sounded like the most 70s, like, sci-fi, like, uh, hedonistic paradise I could imagine. This is our, I mean, this is our, this is our cantina scene for the, for the book. Basically. Which, which it's strange because it's like, it's more of a nightclub than anything. Which is um, almost presaging like the nightclub you see in uh, on Coruscant things too. Yes, no, exactly. Um, it's just it's very strange. It's like I mean, this planet was it Darun? Is that what this one is? Or no, this one's Eddie Four. Thank you, Eddie Four. Uh, this is I mean, it's basically our Tatooine stand-in. This is our most Eisley uh, stand-in, and but it's like everything's just twisted a little bit, which is fine. I mean, I think it's twisted a lot. Honestly, I think he yeah. he does he goes uh, makes pains to really make this its own unique uh, memorable thing. Um, and you see that in, so the, like the first thing you learn is that, okay, so at this, uh, club, uh, they've got like special gravity emitters where it's like localized. So in certain areas you can have like this kind of gravity in other areas you can have like, you know, a lot lighter gravity and that allows people or aliens from different planets with different gravities to kind of be at, be in comfort, uh, at their, uh, at the, at the, at the place. Um, so that, that becomes important later on in the scene. Um. So we get the scene with Pluvo, uh, you know, they kind of have a little banter, it's stupid. Um, I guess we get a few good quips from him, but... Oh yeah, I really regret not doing a running, uh, a running count of how many quips Tom has, because Daily has a field day. Like, oh yeah, man. It is, it's quip after quip. Yeah, and that's why too, like, um, you, you brought it up briefly earlier, and, and for me... My favorite elements of Star Wars is when it does feel very pulpy. And uh, like, you know, in the Han Solo movie, when you've got the, the, the train robbery kind of scene, like, oh, this feels straight out of a pulp movie. And, it's you know, say what you will about the scene or say what you will about the movie. But like when I can pick pieces like that, I enjoy it. And one thing reading this book that I kind of realized is Han's kind of the, the character of Han is kind of the, you know, hard-boiled detective uh, film noir element where it's just like mm-hmm. that quick back and forth, that like immediate, you know, perfect line. Um, so that's that's one thing too. I, I, I kind of, you know, I've always loved Han and, and you know, could could reason different reasons, but um, I think it finally dawned on me that like, oh, that I, I love his quips because I can trace that back to some of these like black and white movies I grew up watching with my dad. Totally. He's, yeah. I mean, George Lucas has nothing but love for serials and yeah, and he noir keeps that, and keeps that lineage alive for he, sure. I mean, look at episode two. That is a noir movie. Yeah, um, even just yeah, Han and Leia, their whole like 
back and forth. Oh, you know, for sure. Is, is straight oh. out of like, uh, you know, it's straight. That's out of like a screwball comedy. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. Oh, I didn't no, no. Me. I was just saying, like, yeah, I'm completely with you. I think of I, when I think that, I think of His Girl Friday lives with. Oh, God, that movie. I still haven't seen that one. Ooh, it's a good one. We should watch it. All right. Um. So. Uh, as they meet with, as he meets with Pluvo, uh, some Espos show up, and they're like, "Hey, first Han. appearance of our big bads, like in person." Yeah, and you know Han is up to his typical like, uh, "Oh me." <laughs> yeah, he, he is a smooth talking. He's a smooth criminal. I mean, that's like yeah. that's his whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> So Han uh, is told by the Espos that, hey, buddy, your shit is not up to code. And then they go into gratuitous detail in every single which way the ship is not up to code. Yes. And it's, it's, it's so much exposition. It's just... Yeah. It does become important, I guess, because Han needs to know what he needs to get for his ship. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all for later, but it's just... It's so... I don't know. It's hilarious to read because it's just like... Any prototypical like bad guy scene in any movie where it's just like, here's my plan and this is why I'm doing it and this is how I'm doing it. I'm gonna tell you the good guy. <laughs> yep. So uh, Han is able to get away because um, just then Pluvo opens the box with the dingo in it and the dingo jumps out and uh, you know basically starts going to town on him. Yes. Uh, Pluvo gets messed up. Also, uh, one element we forgot about the dinko, it's supposed to be the sm- like the worst smell in the world. So oh, you got right, that yeah. go- you got that added to it. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. So a shootout ensues at the free flight dance dome. Um, and <laughs> Han and Chewie are this is very ingenious, are able to escape uh, by turning up the gravity so that everybody is basically pinned to the floor, and then they use the localized emitters to create like a normal gravity pathway that they can just waltz right through as everybody else is like yeah. writhing in pain. Did we, we didn't mention why they have the gravity control. Oh yeah, please. You're right. Um, do we, does anyone have the best grasp on it? Just the, the, how they have the dance floor and everything, how they alter the gravity for. I mean, it's, it's because we're on a planet that has, I mean, this planet that they're on is run by the corporate sector authority, the CSA. So it's like, again, you have, just like we were talking about earlier, you have these creatures and aliens and, and beings from all over the galaxy and further. Um, and everybody comes from a different planet. Everyone's got a different gravity situation. So like this is like a perfect area for it to, you know, that's why they can ha- control the, the gravity in each area. Because like, oh, these guys are from this planet. They want to they wanna have this kind of gravity so it's normal, etc. Or out of the ordinary. Like, or out of the ordinary. Because people are from, like, you know, an uh, Earth-like planet, and they mm-hmm. want to fly. Exactly. I, was into, it, I thought it was my assumption that they have, they can kind of control the gravity within this dance dome so that, you know, they can lower the gravity so that the actual dance floor, instead of, like, you know, the disco floor on the ground, is up above. I think that's also part of it. Yeah, I think it's everything. I think it's all together. I mean, that's why it's called Which, again, we talk about this, like, crazy 70s sci-fi thing. Like, that's it's the epitome of that. Oh, yeah. It's, Because oh, there was a specific point when... They lower the gravity to, or, or higher the gravity so that it, it you know, sticks people to the yeah, ground. There's everybody. a specific point where, like, Han saw that no one was dancing so that they wouldn't, you know, die from the fall. So, yes. Um, yeah, I just, I love the image of, like, free-for-all gravity, dance dome, high above the... This would have been a great set piece. Yeah. Like, it really would have been great. There's a, there's a lot of points during this this book where it's just like, man, that doesn't have been a good movie, um, which is, of course, going to happen when we 
reading these books, but um, yeah, that's a really good one. Also, it's very much with this gravity situation. Uh, <laughs> Victor, you brought this up in in the book, what? but uh, how it's just like it's like busy lifting drinks. And, oh yeah, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, that's all I could think. It's of. just like I couldn't unimagine that. I kept thinking about that. The dome immediately became just all stainless steel. Just that, like that scene. <laughs> that had come out relatively recently. Yeah, that, I mean, it would have been that same era. Would have been on the mind. Um, so, oh, there's also one other part that happens in here um, that just like kind of like took me by surprise a little bit. Where, um, you know, during the kerfuffle here, uh, Chewie like knocks two of the Espos' heads together in like a very Three Stooges fashion. And I'm thinking to myself, ah, that's like really Three Stooges. That's kind of funny. I'll put like a funny note about that. Um, and then. Like, I think Chewbacca causes the Dinko to fl- fling across the room. And this is literally what is written in the book. It falls in the plate of a wealthy dowager. <laughs> and I'm like, was this guy literally watching the Three Stooges or, like, Duck Soup as he was writing this? I mean, that was, I mean, that was all over TV at that point. I know. Like, that was all that was on the set. Must have been, so, a, must have been a Sunday morning when he wrote that. Because that's, that's, that's time to watch Three Stooges. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, we all know about Stoogapalooza here in Chicago on uh, WCIU. Can't go wrong. Mm. I haven't watched that in years. I need, to, I need to fix that. It blew my mind when I found out that that guy is Sven Bueller. <laughs> Sven Bueller, and he's still alive. I know. Yep. Isn't that crazy? He still trends on Twitter. What, <laughs> <laughs> Sven Bueller yeah. still alive? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay, why is, why is the U trending right now? <laughs> I mean, power to him, man. Yeah. So Han is able to get off the planet um, with a little bit of ingenious maneuvering. Uh, he basically steals another ship's call sign and, you know, basically takes their liftoff uh, window. Yeah. Um, so that's how they get out of there. And basically where Han is headed is this um, kind of this, this encampment of uh, rogue-like criminal uh, mechanics that, you know, basically outfit smuggling ships and don't ask questions. Uh, so Han is there to, you know, get his corporate sector authority waiver so that he can go through the steer clear space without any issues. Um, and then also to get a new sensor dish because we didn't mention this, but, uh, the sensor dish on the Falcon got knocked off, uh, as we later see in Empire. Yes. So, uh, Han arrives at the planet and, uh, he's greeted by, uh, Jessa? Jess? Was that Jessa. It? Yeah. And it seems like he's got a pass with her, but it's very ambiguous as to what that pass was. Again, I mean, it doesn't need to be. I mean, it's, it's, this is like, that's pure noir where it's just like the femme fatale. Rather, in her introduction, she's like the femme fatale. You know, she's got the backstory. You know, she's, you know, she's smart. She's quick with her wit. Yeah. But then, I mean, as we soon find out, she's not in the book for much of it. Femme fatale, missing father, all that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like, it's, it's all, all there. Yeah, noir as hell. And um, I also think uh, the fact that we don't know the backstory also kind of speaks to the uh, episodic nature. Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of like Star Wars where it's like, oh, I guess I didn't see that episode. Sure. You, know, you, you get that feeling. That's what makes it feel like a nice serial. Um, so we find out that uh, the doc, who is Han's <laughs> main dude um, for hooking up with, you know, sick mods on his Falcon, uh, he's 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 not here. Um, but Justin Justin doesn't really indicate where he is. Just that he's not here. Uh, so Han's like, uh, okay, cool, whatever. Uh, so can you hook me up with the dish? And yeah, the it's pretty aloof. Yeah, and uh, Justin's like, all right, I can hook you up, but you have to do this little mission where you go pick up some dudes on uh, this planet called Orin Three. Um, you know, just a simple transportation mission, nothing crazy. Um, and then you know, I'll give you everything. Uh, and Han's like, uh, I guess so. 
whatever. Like, if I have to. Like, yeah. he does it begrudgingly. Mm-hmm. But he's like, this is great. Like, all I gotta do is this job, and then I get all my shit. Yeah, but through continued talking, we end up finding out that his job is actually to pick up uh, a bunch of people that are on Orange 4, or Orange 3, looking for uh, lost family members or just loved ones who have been uh, captured and imprisoned, uh, suspectedly, uh, by the corporate sector authority. Yeah. This is where we get, like, our main... This is where we start to get our, our main, you know, plot line here in terms of the main objective. Uh, yeah, things start cooking right here. Yeah, this is where everything starts to come together. Um, we quit, like, I mean, it's kind of funny. That Doc, and this guy's referred to as Doc. He's he described as having a, also, I just want to say this. It's basically just Doc Brown. Some, Marty! That was my thought, yeah. I mean, the way he's described, which, to be fair, like, that's such a generic thing, like, the mad scientist or whatever, basically. But it was just like, I, all I could think of is Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. Like, like that's it. <laughs> you gotta grab the Millennium Falcon and save me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There are grave consequences. <laughs> grave! Um, <laughs> so, anyway, Justice Han is about to, like, you know, start getting outfitted for this mission, and he's gonna get some droids to help out. Uh, we'll get into that in a second. Um, the uh, place is attacked by some ships from the corporate sector authority. I think they're called like IDA or IDS, IRD, IRD ships. I think IRD, IRD fighters, IRD starfighters, IRD starfighters. There you go. They're ironic starfighters. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, anyway, the whole gang's got to jump in these uh, old old Z ninety five headhunters, which is uh, something that I first encountered in that encyclopedia that I was talking to you guys about. Um, I saw the little image, and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. It's going to be like X-Wing, but they don't have the second wings. Uh, they don't, you know, go out through the S-foils. They just stay um, horizontal. Um, so I instantly, you know, remembered what those were. I don't know if you guys uh, were familiar with that, with those ships. I was not. No, I mean, the way that they read is just very, like, a, I mean, they're described as being just tough as nails, basically. Not the best firepower, but they could take a, take a lick. Exactly. They could maneuver well. Too. Yeah, it's, yeah, they're very maneuverable. So this couldn't compare speed to the IRDs, but mm-hmm. maneuvering yeah. was there. They were, yeah, they were, the IRDs had them outgunned and out fast, out speed, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this season, <laughs> um, in this section, we get like a really detailed dogfight. Um, like Brian Daly is clearly like going to town, just like describing every single beat. This was like by and far, like this was the first moment during this book where I was like, this shit's good. Like this is like this. All the dogfighting scenes in this in this section are just they're great. They're, yeah. They're, mm-hmm. There's lots of uh, tension. There's really good uh, suspense and just mm-hmm. are they gonna make it? Are they gonna make it? Yeah. He clearly understands the genre. Yeah. So there's there's six of the good guys and do we ever get? I, I felt like it was four. roughly the Three same. Three or four. Yeah. It's four. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they had a little bit. They were outnumbered in a little bit. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so they, yeah, they make quick work of them, but they also lose like three of their dudes. Uh, so anyway, they you know resume uh, uh, sprucing up the Falcon for the mission. They put this like barge cover on it to make it just look like a big weird rectangle, like a grain barge. <laughs> now, did that completely cover the Falcon? That's one thing yeah. I had an issue imagining. Was it just like attached to the Falcon? Was it completely covering the? Yeah, it completely covers the Falcon, and they mentioned that you know it has like um, its own uh, door basically uh, with uh, like a, a strip to you know walk up like a little plank. Okay. Um, and then that attaches to the actual Falcon's um, uh, landing uh, plank thing. Gotcha. Uh, so it's like you go out one door, and then you come to another door, and then they think you just came out one door. Um, 
So they um, also get hooked up with a uh, couple of robots, some interesting robots, uh, Bullocks and Blue Max, or Max oh. Blue? Blue Max. Blue Max. Uh, so Bullocks is like, I looked it up on Wikipedia, he kind of looks like the medical droid a, a little bit. That's pretty, That's exactly what I was like more or less imagining, actually. I, I didn't look him up, but that, that's basically where I was at. Yeah, but anyway, in his chest, uh, he's got this other tiny little robot that's a cube uh, called Blue Max, and Blue Max... Uh, is like a supercomputer uh, without any frills, so it's just like a little cube, and uh, yeah. Bollocks is, I mean, this is, again, this is where we learn about Bollocks and Blue Max. Blue Max is basically like a child who knows too much. He's just, everything's wide-eyed for him, and Bollocks is like the complete opposite. Yeah. He's long overdue to be decommissioned, but he keeps upgrading himself with these random arbitrary things. Um, yeah, it's very like, fun. He, he really just likes to drone on about yeah. his life. Fox just... has been around since the Clone Wars. Yes, yeah. that was one of the things we learned. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I lo- I love that uh, you know he remembers to give the droids personality like George did. This this is like this was so important to me. Like yeah. this this really made made the book like a step above. Yeah, and I think in Blue Max we see the first um, appearance of a certain droid personality archetype that I think recurs in Star Wars, which is the uh, deadpan uh, droid. Um, we yes. see that, in, you know, we, uh, without this, you're not going to have, you know, K2SO in Rogue One. Uh, without this, you're not going to have, you know, HK-47 in Old Republic. Um, it's definitely a very influential character, even if not a lot of people know um, that. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so his pr- purpose is that he's got all this data, and they're going to use him to download uh, data at the... Uh, corporate sector authority uh, headquarters, like their data processing facility on the uh, what was the planet? Oron three. Yeah, Oron three. I just said it earlier. Um, so they take off and they go to Oron, and they, you know, everything is business as usual. They land, then they meet this guy named Recon, who's like uh, posing as like a data worker at the data center. And he's notably he's a black character. Amazing, right? Yeah. Who knew that it could, they could exist in Star Wars? Right. Shocking. <laughs> Amazing. So, uh, Recon, you know, at first he's a little bit cagey, and you kind of don't know what his deal is. Uh, but then you quickly, you know, learn from him um, that he is uh, basically leading a group of folks that are trying to find loved ones that were suspectedly, you know, imprisoned by the corporate sector authority. And Recon kind of introduces us to the rogues gallery here. Cough. Yes, the doc is one of them. <laughs> he, he's one of those uh, suspected people. Uh, Han eventually learns this, like Jessa eventually lets on, basically. Um, so, um, Recon introduces them uh, to, let's see, let's yeah, let's kind of get into these weird aliens and not aliens. This is a, a classic, by the way, a classic send-up where, I mean, this is like a, a good trope, but it's a trope nonetheless, where someone is a traitor, um, and we gotta flush them out. Um, that's where immediately we're we're introduced to that fact before we actually are introduced to the to the supporting cast. Yeah, here. Recon's like so. The other reason why you're here is that we suspect like one of these dudes of being a traitor. So like you need to suss that out. Flush out that space stink. That was a line I loved. There's a uh, at one point someone just gets yes. called space stink. Yeah. I'm like why wasn't that used? In what is space stink? In space, no one can hear. There's Nerf Herder at mm, uh, the highest it. level for me. Space Kink isn't... Uh, it's pretty good, good. yeah. yeah. They, 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 they,
Um, so the people uh, among his gang of searchers, and we should mention that Rekog's looking for his nephew, who is yes. outspoken, I guess. He, uh, yeah, he was basically like a student student protester. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. like, like yeah. you know, your standard college campus. Rekon was a, an educator. Rekon was a, pro, a professor. Yes, professor. yeah, Rekon is a professor. Yeah, at a university that was run by the CSA. Mm-hmm. You know, that must be weird. No liberal right. <laughs> it's basically Phoenix University right there. You made a point to say the liberal arts program was bad. They did? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. Ah, so, um, so the searchers, we've got Term. He's like a human. I guess like his family was a bunch of independent landowners um, that happened to live in the CSA. And there was like a big argument about their land or something. And he's they a were, redhead. That's like his only other like yeah, that's defining feature. Yeah, but anyway, so his family wouldn't budge. A bunch of them mysteriously disappeared. I think his like brother, his dad, father. Yeah. Um, so that's his story. Um, then we have Atoir, um, a female Triani. The Triani are basically like the Khajiits from the Elder Scrolls. That's all I can think of, and it's just another character from the first. Yeah, cat characters. Um, so basically, her people long ago had settled this like edge world um, uh, that would eventually be. Uh, invaded and annexed by the CSA. Um, of course, they resisted, and members of her family disappeared, um, specifically like her cub and then also her mates. Uh, she did eventually find her cub named Paka, um, but they, like, fucked him up, and he can't talk. This is, like, another pretty good... Again, I think this is a trope, but I think it's a good one, you know? The loved one who was tortured to the point where something's wrong with them, whether that be, you know, they can't speak, they can't see, whatever it may be. I, I, the thing that I thought of first... Strangely, was uh, Battlestar Galactica mm-hmm. with uh, what's his face losing his eye to the was it to the Cylons? Oh, uh, um, uh, Colonel Ty. Ty, yes, yeah. that's a Ty. Love him. Yeah, sorry. How do we? How does he know that there's a traitor? Remind me. How is he suspicious? Because there's two things. They've uh, several members of their crew have already been picked off before we're introduced to them. Uh, sorry, Beckham's crew. Yeah. Um, and then also, like the CSA showed up at. Jessa's camp, which was strange. Uh, they oh, do, yeah, 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 they shouldn't have known. They make a make a point of saying like it was just like a exploratory scout mission because there was only four of them. Yeah, it wasn't like a full force. So someone knows at least enough to say they could be here, they could be there. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yep. Um, I think our last person is Engritz. Uh, we don't actually get to meet him. I don't think. Um, no. Yeah, he's just talked about. He's already been. Yep, so his sister was, like, this legal scholar that disappeared, and that made me wonder, like, what is the legal system like in Star Wars? That has never gone into, ever. Nope. Um, so, Reckon, um, basically, is like, alright, Han, I'm gonna help you get that waiver for the Falcon, and then we can go, you know, rescue all these people. Uh, so, Blue Max basically, like, hacks into the data system, uh, to find, uh, you know, where the people are being held. Um, and then, uh, yeah, this is the moment when we learn that Engritz is, you know, not uh, incommunicado anymore. Is incommunicado. Um, when Rekon Re- is fully convinced that he's been uh, by the CSA. Classic. Yes. Um, so they eventually get the data, um, uh, but they hear, like, the Espos are about to, you know, enclose. Uh, so Han, like, jacks a skimmer. Uh, they start heading for the air spaceport, but uh, Han crashes it. Um, so Chewbacca grabs Blue Max. And he hooks them up with this nearby, like, giant agro-robots or agrobots. Oh, yeah. This whole plan is just farm. Yeah. And I, again, stuff, like, not in the movies, I enjoyed this plan a lot. Just, like, yeah. It, you, if you were to tell me, oh, it's just, like, all, like, giant uh, fields of grain, 
you know, like, oh, okay, like, that doesn't interest me, but the way it's written and, like, how... It's well-written. Yeah. It's super well-written. Creates a beautiful image. It really does, and it's, like, I don't know, it's it's strange. Like, we have this planet that's basically mostly inhabited by robots, from what I always describe. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's a very boring thing. Yeah, it's all agrarian, and then there's, like, the one city where the, the central data the center is. Yeah. 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 The people there are just like there because they, you know, they're the people who are running the robots, basically. I don't know if you guys watched uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, but it did kind of remind me of uh, Bajor a little bit. Um, not Star Trek. Uh, yeah, not familiar, unfortunately. Uh, okay, okay, then I'm just going to drop that thought. No, no, no. Um, no it's not, um, you know, it's just a nice uh, pastoral planet that is taken over by a fascistic organization, so, you know. Um, so. This is uh, one thing to add too. Uh, before they get to the, before they leave the, basically when they hear that the Espos are closing in on them when they're doing all this data research, uh, first and foremost we learn that someone has given them up because the Espos know exactly where they are in terms mm-hmm. of in the building, and then in order to throw yes, them off their Blue Max it, finds that out. When yes, exactly. When Blue Max plugs in, we get that. Um, and I really enjoyed how they get to plug it in. He plugged it. Yes. There's a lot of, a lot of sex stuff in this book. Intentional or not, it's very, very sexual, this book. Um, Super sexual. It's more sexual than anything we've seen in Star Wars at this point. So sexy. Anyways, um, yeah. he just basically throws every single alarm he can possibly think of. So basically all the SPOs are being pulled in every which direction, yeah. which allows them to slip out and get that skimmer. And then we get this awesome set piece, which we were just about going to. Yeah, so dope. Um, yeah, so you know, we see Han uh, crash the skimmer. And then, you know, Chewbacca finds this uh, agri- Agrobot, um, but then, um, this is like the saddest part of the book, Chewbacca's captured. It's, it's like, he doesn't go down by the fight, because he's fucking Chewbacca. Hell yeah. But, uh, yeah, we unfortunately see him, he, he gives his all to protect Han, basically, and he stays back and gets captured. Bless his heart. Um, and Han, like, you know, tries to go after him, but Recon, you know, just gives him a stunshot in the back, and that's yeah. a very... Cinematic noir moment yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. You know you don't know when you're like you don't yeah. know what's. Yeah, this is for your own good. Yeah, uh, give me a pounded. <laughs> nothing personal, kid. Yeah, exactly. Literally, literally nothing personal, kid. Um, <laughs> so uh, they manage to escape the planet, um, and then there's like this quick thing where they get caught by like a dreadnought's uh, tractor beam, a dreadnought from the corporate sector authority. Um, and then Han is able to get rid of it by basically dropping his load of grain, <laughs> a la Back to the Future. Right? Oh my God, I wish <laughs> you could see that. Oh. I didn't connect that at all. Yeah. So we got Doc Brown, and we yeah. got uh, yeah, we got dropping the grain. It's clearly this uh, Back to the Future is this book off. Um, <laughs> one thing too, uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself too, but one thing crucially. So Blue Max says he got the plans to, mm-hmm. to know where um, these people are being uh, uh, held, yeah. but it's not said yet in the book. No, it so is we not don't yet. know yet. Um, and we we are basically learn in just a minute. Um, so after they escape the dreadnoughts, um, Han uh, finds Recon's body basically like slumped over the uh, the game board, like the holographic game board on the Falcon. Yeah. Um, and the data plaque uh, with all the info is just you know completely destroyed. Um, so Han, you know, is instantly like, okay, I need to disarm everybody on board. You need to find out what the fuck is this. Um, and then he sees scrawled out on the, uh, the game board, uh, Star's End, Mirtus 4? 5? E- 4, I believe. Ooh. No, it's 7. 
they kept changing it on doing his, his tricks, weeding, weeding out uh, who the culprit was. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is kind of like a fun little, I mean, it's very, this is a fun little catch me in the ass. Seven. Yeah, it's seven. Midas seven. There we go, Midas. Ah, uh, Midas, yes, the Midas touch. Yeah, I completely botched, botched that. Um, so this ends up uh, taking us to one of the most gruesome parts of the book where um, Han basically figures out that uh, it was Term. Torm? Torm? Huh. Fucking weird name. It's Hating like, it's it. awkward to say. Well, I guess, I guess, you look at Game of Thrones, Tormund, that's like, come on, he's the best. And he's also a redhead, strangely. Was Tormund inspired by Torm? Mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> um, Han uses like Let's a pretty funny... Uh, Han uses actually <laughs> yeah. Han uses like a pretty like uh, Varus type maneuver, where um, you know he 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 like intentionally um, gets the name of the planet wrong um, to see like who knows that was a nice touch. what he wrote. Yeah. Um, and then you know Tom Tom corrects him and he wrote minus minus seven, um, and then uh, or minus six or I don't know whatever. Yeah, he says it's minus six, and it's yeah, a cool it's thing. Yeah, it's just a, very much a, you know, trick him. Yeah, I'm trick. too stupid to understand it. Also, he gave everyone, like, their blasters back, but he purposely yeah, he disabled them. He drained uh, Torm's. Oh, and, and wait, he drained both, all of them, right? And then, yeah, he was going all backstabby, I forgot. He, like, takes all their guns away, drains them, and then gives them back. He's like, oh, yo, the other guy, you know, I think they're the bad one. Yeah. But he didn't know which one was which. <laughs> Yep, very much like big reveal at the end. Bring everyone to the the, the thin man. Bring everyone to yeah. the dinner table at the end. Exactly. I'll figure it out from there. So uh, Han, as punishment, uh, throws this guy out of the airlock. But it's like it's not just that he threw him out of the airlock. He threw him out of the airlock while they were in hyperspace. What the fuck? Yeah, it's That's it's gruesome. gruesome. Yeah, like I, you can your brain just like you know immediately starts imagining every which way a body could be mangled and morphed. <laughs> can I can I read this little uh, this little line? Please do. Let's get some quotes. Yeah, we haven't done it yet. Anyways, uh, the, out, the outer hatch snapped open. With the explosion of air into vacuum, Torm was hurled out into the chaotic pseudo-reality of hyperspace. Once outside the Millennium Falcon's mantle of energy, the units of matter and patterns of force that had been Torm ceased to have any coherence. Jesus Christ, that sounds like a transporter accident on Star Wars. I mean, Star Trek. There you go. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty wild. Um, so moving right along, um, they eventually get to Midas uh, 7. With more, a little more bollocks development. Yeah. He's taking, and it literally says he had a deadpan delivery, like in case you did not get the tone of his voice. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I like to call him the epic wing droid. <laughs> yeah, there's a, <laughs> there's this weird little, I don't know, I just want to bring this up because it was so goofy. Uh, Han refers to Blue Max because Blue Max is small. First of them is low pockets. Yes. <laughs> strange, very weird. Yeah, like totally like gumshoe. Like. Yeah, no, exactly. Very, very noir. Like very, yeah. very gumshoe insult. Just very, you yeah. Um, and then they also talk about uh, one of the Espo's methods of uh, interrogation, which Ooh, is the yeah. burning. And I'm just going to read this. 
The burning was a torture involving the use of a blaster set at low power to scorch and sear the flesh off a prisoner, leaving only leaving only a blood-smeared bone. Usually, a leg would be first mobilizing the victim, then the rest of the skeleton was exposed inch by inch. Any other prisoners could be made to watch to break their will. The burning seldom failed to obtain answers, if answers were to be had, but in Han's opinion, no being who employed such methods deserved to live. Hell yeah. Yike. Effed up. So, at this point, um, Hans decides to get his bug's life on. <laughs> I'm like, yes, that's exactly what this is. It's all I could think of. Oh my god. So they I pretend didn't to be that at all. They pretend to be a theater troupe uh, that's going to perform at Star's End uh, from the Imperial Entertainers Guild um, because they get like a little message from the Imperial Entertainers Guild. They um, understand yeah, everything. Saying that they can't make it. Or yeah, delayed. like they're yeah. just like they had been like floating in space near the planet, yeah, they were, like, not knowing what to do, and they were trying to like intercept uh, messages, and everything was encoded until this message. This was, I mean, this was so goofy. God, now oh, yeah. I can't stop thinking about Bugs Life. <laughs> that's that's that was my aim the whole time. I make you think of Kenny's character. <laughs> Let me be frank. Uh, so, uh, and this is also where we learned that Bullocks has been around since the Clone Wars. Um, so anyway, they're able to like you know pull one over for the most part, um, and they, they 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 buy it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, so we've got Hans the Marksman. Yes, we should we should go into detail about each role that they play. Hans the Marksman. The feline creatures. Sorry, blanking oh, on the names. Yeah, they're acrobats, they're right? Acrobats. Aturi yeah. yeah. and Paka. Paka. So Paka's an acrobat, but Aturi is just like she's dancing the with the Triani. Like Triani, I guess, are known for their dancing. And then Bullocks, who actually there's a line earlier in the book had experience with entertainment troops. Yes. Um, was positioned to be... What was he positioned to be? A storyteller. Storyteller. Yeah, yeah, but it doesn't quite go that way for him. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, he gets pegged as a gladiator droid instead because that was apparently among the promised attractions. That, we certainly learned that's like all... What's his face? Her, what's his name? Herker? Oh, yeah. So the Vice Prince? Vice yeah. Prince. Vice yeah. Prince. Whatever his name is. That's all he wants. He's got like... He's got a big boner for robot fights, and like that's it. <laughs> yeah, dude, he's a big fan of battle bots. <laughs> he loves Beyblade. <laughs> Going back to the true two, fun little moment for me was the. I mean, we've only ever seen Han Solo wear like one thing, true. and they Very build true. their costumes out of his wardrobe. Yeah, out of his Air wardrobe. Like, wardrobe. Yeah, and they make like uh, like capes for all of them too, out of his wardrobe. I love the idea of them all wearing. Epaulets and yeah, yeah dope as hell. And they were like, yeah, Hans wearing like just like a leotard, like hula hoops there too, like jumping rings and all yeah, this, for yeah, for pocket and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's like you never know what you'll find in the section. Capes and they give bollocks, who's like very much described as like this. He's like rusty, got peeling paint, like you know. Again, this is an old droid. That part made sense right? to me. Yeah, if you're a smuggler, you're gonna, like if you steal cars, you're gonna have car paint. Yeah, no, totally. So they've got paint, and they repaint bollocks to... They give them a shiny new coat. Yeah. Five coats of Five paint. coats. And wow. paint stripes. Oh, okay. so fancy. Uh, like 80s business matter. <laughs> right? Yeah, so uh, that's what happens. Uh, they, you know, they do this. Um, we also get a cool mention. Um, this is one of the first ex- uh, appearances in the EU. Um, they mention at the top of Star's End, which is like this a giant tower... 
on Maitu or Midas, yeah. Um, and they mentioned that it's covered with a dome of transparent steel, which instantly jumped out to me as, oh, that's what they refer to glass as um, on spaceships across the board in like Star Wars Expanded Universe books. Hmm. Uh, so I was like, oh, is that, that the first appearance? And I looked it up and God, yeah, it was. I saw yeah. your note for that. And then, okay, I hope he talks about it. Yeah. Running, running number of things that make a first appearance, fiber steel and... Fiber blade. That's right. Jesus. Sorry, buddy. Oh, I'll make sure God. you get it right. No, please do. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, they basically, uh, you know, start to get the lay of the land over here. Um, They're just killing time. They need to complete their mission. Yeah. All the hijinks ensue. So, this Perkin guy, he seems to be kind of a douche. Oh, big, big time douche. I mean, he's kind of like cartoonishly, yeah, he's not cartoonishly damaged. He's not, he's a... He's a, he's a guy who likes to watch robots kill each other. Yeah. He knows what he likes. He hates his wife. Or, no, sorry, fiance? Who is it? Is he married? A wife. No, soon to, wait. Oh. Wait. Yeah, yeah, he's sure yeah. yeah. My wife. A, there's a boomer moment of being a wife bad. <laughs> <laughs> hey, take my wife. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, like, he likes to torture people and he likes robots to kill each other. Yeah, and he's got this like lizard uh, guard named Urashan. Yeah, and if you want to compare him to another Elder Scrolls creature, he's almost like a fucking Ethan. There you go. Wow. <laughs> uh, I don't think we played Elder Scrolls games, but no. So Kaji or cat people and Argonians are lizard people. Yeah, it's it's, it's that simple. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um. So I was just imagining Killer Croc. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. I was imagining uh people like like Bosk. That's what oh, I was Bosk. Sure. Uh, so they're on my two seven, um, and they're checking out uh, this uh, you know Star's End Tower, um, and so basically Han is like, um, "Hey, um, we need to repair our droid in order for him to be you know a gladiator," um, and Herkin I guess like buys it, um, and they like you know say that Blue Mac is like some sort of little like, component that they need, and you know, they buy that. We get this classic, like I mean, it's just a classic trope, you know. The the guard who's with Han starts asking too many questions, and what does Han do? He knocks him cold, and then he takes his uniform. <laughs> yep. Uh, so yeah, he takes the uniform. Um, oh wait, maybe he only takes the badge. He's got the badge for sure. Okay, badge is definitely there. Oh yeah, he doesn't take the uniform because Han takes off his. I remember. He takes off his uh, special costume, oh, yeah. and underneath he's got something that looks like coveralls, which oh, yeah. he said can pass for I with the badge. That, yeah. Yes. Um, so basically, you know, with Blue Max at his side, um, as you know, Bullock is about to, you know, get fucked up by this like horrible executioner droid. Um, <laughs> uh, Han is able to get all that data um, with Blue Max, um, and they find out that Chewbacca is being held as prisoner in this like stasis booth. So yeah, it's a lot like the Matrix, like they're all frozen in time, basically. Yeah, because that was an interesting part because part of the exposition for this is Han and all the good guys are seeing like, well, I'm not really seeing like a lot of security guards or heavy weaponry or like if this was a prison, like where are the signatures? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We learn all well. Yeah, it's, it's really unclear. They call it stasis pods. They're almost like I immediately thought of carbonate. I mean, that's our like 
that's what we think of sure. when we think of Star Wars, but they're not necessarily carbonite. No, it's almost like that thing. Do you guys remember in um, Episode Two when uh, Obi Wan's been captured on Geonosis by Count Dooku, and he's like being kept like in his like energy uh, bracelets or whatever? Yeah, but yeah. mine's completely like lucid and conscious, whereas all these people are, you know, basically frozen in time. Yeah. Um. Yeah. According to Wikipedia, it's like a coffin-like container. Okay. It produces an entry. Like vertical, vertical coffin type of system. Yeah. So, yeah, they're all locked in here, which is why there's a few signatures. And basically, they're only taken out to be tortured, and then they put right back in the spaces pod. So it's like literally their existence is entirely just torture. At least on Star Trek, you get the torture inside the spaces pod. They're called Ekinu Boots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were introduced in, like, uh, the original series during the new universe episode. Uh, but they come back in uh, Discovery. Nice. Um, anyway. Um, so... Han is, you know, dilly-dallying, you know, trying to figure out how to get Chewbacca out, um, and uh, Perkins starting to get anxious, and he's like, where the fuck is the marksman? I want this marksman here! Now! Oh, man. What's gonna happen? Yep. Um, Should so. we talk about uh, his battle droid, too? Had, like, oh, yeah, we should. Grievous the most, with, like, the... yeah. It's just got like a billion little like saws and shit. With a different that. weapon on each arm. Had, yeah. Like, I just thought like spider arms, whatever, and like a different weapon on each arm. Yeah. It's called like an executioner bot, like a Mark Mark X. Mark X yeah. executioner droid. Very fucked up. Um, yeah, so it's like <laughs> Bullocks is about to just get like killed by this thing. Yeah. Um, and Han is rushing. This is like another dramatic moment where he needs to. Oh god, he's running. He's literally sprinting through Star's End. Yeah, because he frees Chewbacca, <laughs> um, and Chewbacca, you find out that apparently, like, Chewbacca, like, fucking, like, killed three guards while they apprehended him, and it's like, hell yeah. Because he's fucking Chewbacca. Hell yeah, he's Chewbacca. What did they, one thing I was a little confused by, what did Blue Max and Han actually start that, like, what, like, chain of reaction did they actually start in the, with the computer system? This like was pretty unclear. Um, I like you kind of like I, I kept picking up on it as I like finished reading the book, but essentially they like overload the generator that starts. So Star Wars is a tower and it sits on top of a giant generator, and they say it's like a generator big enough to power a city. Um, yeah, which and is, then eventually it, blows up. Right, they call so it a power plant. Yeah, they, they, so they power. So the reason it's got this giant power plant is because that that's what powers the spaces pods. Sure. And they basically overload that, and that literally shoots the tower. Up into yeah, into the atmosphere. It doesn't it's, quite reach space, right? Yeah, so it's not going to reach space, so it's going to come down at some point. It's very, yeah. it's kind of confusing, just because it's like, well, it's a building. Why is it doing that? But it's like yeah. you got to remember that the gravity is going to be different on this planet. They do note that like there's no atmosphere like to speak of on the planet. Like everything is in everything is connected by tubes and stuff like that. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it was it wasn't super clear. It's a very much of like a kind of a clusterfuck sort of. Uh, and yeah, and that, I mean, I feel like that's kind of mid intentional like you know it's chaos like mm -hmm. and because you know han han doesn't believe in plans basically yeah no he doesn't uh there's a great moment where we're <laughs> when we finally meet up with doc and he's just like why did you do that you idiot he's like i'm sorry would you prefer the alternative <laughs> yeah they they rescued uh, doc what was what was the wording for that too it's like yeah um the doc only has like high taste in um rescue plans or something like that <laughs> something that effect yeah i love that i had a nine and 
so yeah, they, they do rec- rescue the duck. Um, and yeah, this whole escape is like a clusterfuck, but basically they're able to, you know, free Bullocks from being killed by the, uh, Ooh, gets slotted into Balka's chest just yeah. in time. Oh, love it. Um, yeah, and uh, so there's like this weird stuff with like you know tombs that are like evacuating people, like as like you know the the stars and is like getting ready to blow. And uh, yeah, basically we free all of the prisoners, and then there's too many prisoners to fit in the Millennium Falcon, and then we put them into tubes. It's very confusing. Yeah, and Kirkin Kirkin is unable to like uh, get. Um, to the tube in time and like he's like basically like i think he like pushes his wife out of the way to get there he like he, like, he throws everybody in the bus he's like, yeah. I will, like fuck everybody yeah take me with you i will do anything yeah and then there's this great image where they're like flying away from the planet and you can just see uh hurricane just like banging on the glass like as it's oh no yeah no it was even better than that. Yeah. What? It's even better than that. Did I misread? You did. What it, like this is so exciting i'm so glad i get to tell you this Perkin is yelling at Han to be like, you know, I'll do anything, take me with you, mm. I will give you anything you want. That's it. And yeah. his wife shoots him in the back! Yep. Mm. That was it, yeah. Oh, so great. Wife good. Very poetic. <laughs> uh, she still dies anyway, from what we can tell, though. <laughs> so I got I got Doc's line. Doc tells Han, I don't think much of your taste in jailbreaks. <laughs> and my note was, Doc has a more refined jailbreak palette. <laughs> Yeah, and we get a nice little battle with uh, the lizard dude, too. Um, What's his name again? That ended abruptly to me. Like, yeah. Did he really say he died? I, I didn't... We get... I think this whole... Like, so, like, as soon as we get into this whole, like, ending set piece of, like, the chaos, like, the deus ex machina starts to set in, and, like, I do feel like a lot of stuff has been half-written, almost, or it's been edited out, because, I mean, we talk about how unclear it is, like, what's happening, which could be intentional, like, you know, it's chaos, but on the same note, like, you know... Like that battle is like kind of built up, like Han and, and the the assassin like know each other. Yeah, but... Which, by the way, yeah, when Han reveals that he's Han Solo, lizard guy has also heard of Han, so they've heard yeah. of each other. Yeah, but yeah, Han kills them, um, and yeah, they they escape the planets. Um, everybody's happy. Oh wait, Balak saves him. Well, yeah, that's the cool thing. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so Han like discovers Balak's like you know um, he had been kind of left behind. Um, yeah, and Han, you know, takes care of the, the reptile dude, uh, um, and then, yeah, Han basically, yeah, drags bullets to the, the tube and saves his life, essentially. Um, and it receives help from, uh, a tourist mate, which they also, who they also found. Yes. They pretty basically, like, a lot of prisoners died, but, you know, none of the important ones. Yeah, many Bothans died. Um, <laughs> many Bothans! <laughs> Great man. Sean just brought this to my attention. This band called Many Bothans. No. no, have you heard? So my favorite, like, Star Wars theory, uh, when they say Many Bothans died to get the Death Star plans, there was actually Death just one plans. one person named Manny Bothans. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. I like it. It's uh, my good luck bowling name, apparently now. Nice. Had a great story. Oh my god, Sean was like, "Oh yeah, I'm, I'm okay with bowling." Getting strike after strike. So, uh, they wind up, um, on, like, this new planet where they're gonna set up, like, a new outlaw tech base, um, and they, uh, unfortunately, Bullocks, you know, can't be saved, really, but, uh, Blue Max saved his personality, so they're able to load him into a new body, which is what they're planning to do. Yeah, that was nice. That really became, like, they really became, like, a second, like, Han and Chewie as far as, like, I'm yeah. not leaving him. It was, yeah. it was cool, and it was a nice mirror to that, uh, relationship. Um, yeah, and then, uh, you know, Han's like, hey... Thanks for the help. 
or no, Jess is like, you know, uh, thanks him. Um, and, you know, Han's like, that's really all you got? It's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> the ending is so bizarre. And then Jess is just like, basically like, look, I'll fuck you. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> oh, God, it's so, it's such a weird, like, in the way it's written is bizarre. It's just like, here, I'll fix your ship. I said I'd fix your ship. You still owe me for X, Y, Z. And it's like, in Todd's like, I can't pay you. Like, what are you talking about? I'm just like, oh, I know what you can pay me with. Yeah. And then they walk off into the sunset. And Brian Daly writes the end and then proceeds mm-hmm. to masturbate. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or have sex with his wife. I don't know. The answer to both questions is yes. Well, so that brings us to the end of the book. Um, so um, at this point in the show, we like to uh, kind of uh, do a little quick fan casting uh, of the main oh. characters uh, just for, you know, funsies. Uh, so, I mean, let's start, obviously we know who played Han Solo and Chewbacca, but, uh, what about that Pluvo 2 for 1? And these have to be, like, period actors, too, like, from the, like, the early movies, the late 70s. This one's tough for me. I didn't, I almost, part of me wants to say Orson Welles again. No, because, like, know... this guy's supposed to be, like, super slim, I think, yeah. Oh, I thought, no, Pluvo yeah, has a doughy mean... belly. Yeah, because that's the, the dingo, dingo digs into yeah. his. Oh, his you're right. Like saw, I saw like a panel from the comic, and he looked different. Well, that maybe it was just the way his face was drawn. Um, I can see John Candy. John Candy would be very funny playing a little against type. <laughs> yeah, very against type. Um, who played Jessica? Find his his physical comedy reaction to the dingo. I like yeah. that's what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just uh, part of me is just I just watched Planes, Trains, and Automobiles at the uh, box. Oh God, Excellent great. film. Uh, I'll get into that later. I gotta bring that up again. But uh, okay. Uh, who else? Did you, Victor, who did you have in mind? Uh, for Pluto, um, no, I, I think you're right. John Candy's a good choice. Um, I was also thinking of like yeah, just um, at the time, you know, if it was like a period casting. Um, I don't know. Jennifer Jason Leigh could be good. She was a little young at that point, wasn't she? Yeah, you're right. But I mean, when is really past times? Do um I don't know someone like, like Jessica Lang like she was in Ooh, King Kong that'd be a good one Jessica Lang there's a lot of uh, God, there's a lot she of was I remember they said she was blonde Yes. who was fan with the period X who was that uh, female that she was she was like not quite seventeen mm. yeah she is kind of perfect though I would agree she looks like she could go toe to toe with Harrison Ford yeah for sure okay so that's a good casting I'm done with that. Who else we got? Um, how about voices on the droids? Um, Blue Max is a, a child blank. Child blank, yeah. Yeah, but also sardonic. So you need like a child with dry wit, which is tough. Hmm. Doc, we got Christopher Lloyd. Yeah, Doc has to be Christopher Lloyd. I mean, that's all I can think of. Yeah. Um, Bullocks. Um, Ben Stein. Ben Stein, thank you. He could do that pretty well, probably. Are all droids British? <laughs> like, are all talking droids? No. No, I think just 3PO. I mean, yeah, but there are other British ones, too. Alan Tudyk. He's, he's not British, he's Canadian. But did he no. do a British accent? I think he, he did. did American. Maybe. I don't know. Well, if you're doing Star Wars, you should just do a British accent. <laughs> I don't know, man. I think we should have had some more British accents. Like, why, is it, why doesn't John Boyega just have his own accent? But 
Why do we have to make him American? Yeah, yeah, that I didn't understand. I mean, the whole point of us being in space is that there's endless possibilities. Like, why does any actor have to do a voice? Yeah, man, they ruined. I mean, John Boyega is a great actor, and I feel like they just ruined him. But um, that's that's enough out of my sequel. One movie for redemption. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, then that brings us to our next uh, aspect of wrapping things up. Um, we're going to start to rate this on a scale of 1 to 10 on three different factors. Uh, first, uh, let's rate it on a scale of 1 to 10 for camp value. Um, I'm going to say about like a 5 because it's not super campy, but there are certain things like the free flight dance film that are like just pure, like, you know, like, like a concentrated syrup of 70s like camp, and it's amazing. What are you, Sean? Yeah. Um... What are our, what are our next two? I can kind of. Oh, we're just going one by head. one. So this one's just one one to ten. Well, no, what do you want from the next? So yeah, we'll split this out. But yeah, yeah. we're like it's camp value, um, lore, like its contributions to the lore, and sure. then objective quality. Yeah, we should share that with our viewers. Yeah, uh, no worries. Um, yeah, I'll give it a little little higher for camp. I mean, it was very seventies in parts, very dated in parts. Um, you know, you get the 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 classic quips with Han and. and banter and stuff like that so I'll, I'll do a little higher than yours i'll give it i'll give it a seven seven okay i'd yeah. split the difference actually and go six because mm-hmm. i do think that this is more it's not that it's played straight but it's not necessarily camp you know i think daily was was dealing with a lot of um there's a lot of tropes and i mean in a good way I and mean, he was still coming off of like the holiday special so totally. um there had been unfortunately you know camp abuse in star wars uh dangerous way um okay so we have that uh we're gonna put it at the kind of like the five to seven range uh now for contributions to lore i'm just gonna say like this is a 10 because this lays the foundation for so much and i don't think we could have the expanded universe without this book i would agree yeah i, I don't know if i give it a 10 but like this is like it contributes a, sh- a shitload i would say like if it was just a book like in the expanded universe like years down the line i would give it like maybe like a seven sure. but because it's like so close to the beginning and it's the foundation I feel it like is and it's the, the first in a trilogy yep. too. yeah so that's what i was gonna bring up <laughs> yeah all right uh let's do the last one uh objective quality uh i'm gonna say this is like a hard 8.5 i thought this was like a very nice pleasant read wasn't like you know a transcendent work of art but uh it definitely is extremely satisfying and the guy writes on um, better than anyone I've ever read before. So that's all you can ask for. Sean? Yeah, I think I'd give it, go like a 7.5 to an 8. I think um, it was great to read uh, one of these sci-fi type books again. You know, I, I got lost a little bit in some of the nuance when it talks about like all the damage to the ships, stuff like that, that I don't necessarily care about. But just as far as like a fun sci-fi read going planet to planet, action adventure happening, happening, you know, kind of took me back to like that those were the types of books i would read like on summer break in like high school junior high stuff like that and it kind of took me back to that that time period and, and yeah i enjoyed it a lot i would say yeah i think like between a 7.5 and an 8 maybe like a 7.7 just to really hone in on it 7.75 wow. um like pitchfork. there's no there's no hundred percent score in pitchfork if they did i man they would they would lose subscriber oh um i i really liked chunks of this book um like the dog fighting for me that whole scene was just phenomenal it really made me want to go back and like revisit like more of the world war ii pilot stuff um you know black sheep squadron at all uh the way they described the dog fight was just daily did a great job um 
But yeah, there's lots of chunks of this book that were super enjoyable. Um, for all its problems, like the ending chaos climax was great. Um, and, and I think he does have good attention to detail where it, where it matters. Does he somehow it sometimes overindulge? Sure, but uh, overall, yeah, I would give it like a seven point seven five. Wow, I'm surprised that I gave it the highest rating. I am. I'm a little surprised too. I don't know. I don't know. Just like you know, I guess the more research I did, the more just like realizing how foundational it is. I think kind of oh. uh, amps it up a little bit. It's. I mean, it's definitely important. There's no denying that. Uh, but yeah. So I got. I, I guess what I'm saying is I just ha have a lot of respect for what Brian Daly did here. I think Brian Daly did God's work, George's work. <laughs> Maybe rest in peace. Rip. Well, on that note, I think it's a good time to uh, bring this to an end. Uh, so, um, as always, uh, this is Victor. Cole. And uh, Sean, do you have anything you want to plug before we end? No, yeah, just thanks a lot for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Good to have you, Sean. Thanks. Thanks. Bye.